Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. Today in our Bully Pulpit series, the last episode of this semester, actually, we are welcoming Ben Rhodes to discuss his new book, After the Fall, Being an American in the World We've Made. I'll leave time toward the end of this, 15 or 20 minutes, for audience questions. Ben was Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speech Writing under President Obama. He co-hosts the widely popular podcast, brilliantly named Pod Save the World. He is also a former fellow at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. It was a privilege to have him with us and an extraordinary opportunity for our students. So Ben, I'm going to jump right in with this. It's a fundamental question that you aim to answer in the book. What do you think it means to be an American in what you describe as a world gone wrong? Yeah, Bob. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. And uh, I love that time, too. Uh, at the Center for the Political Future, I actually wrote a chunk of my book, teaching a class on authoritarianism when I was there. Um, and the students really helped me think through some things. You know, a, a central premise of the book, right, is I, I look at a period of history from the fall of the Berlin Wall, kind of the apex of America's sense of itself in the world, to where we are now. So there's a couple of falls along the way. And One of the things that I kind of had to wrestle with is the degree to which we're kind of ingrained with a sense of exceptionalism, that the big battles have been won, that democracy had prevailed, that the future was somewhat inevitably moving in the direction of of more open societies, more tolerant and progressive societies. And part of what has happened is a return of history with a vengeance. And uh, what I wrestle with in the book is not only is the United States on the receiving end of rising authoritarianism around the world, we ourselves have contributed to it a lot um, through our social media platforms that we created, through our post-9-11 policies, which have often uh, fueled authoritarianism uh, and and us versus them politics, Uh, and through, I think, the void that our victory in the Cold War left when global capitalism kind of intruded upon people's sense of traditional identity um, and created inequities that strong men could could take advantage of. And so in that context, though, um, to me, the things that we took as given are not what makes us American. Um, it's doing the work, you know, and I, I think that's something that, you know, um, two of our former bosses, Barack Obama and Ted Kennedy, you know, that that we, we are not granted these values. Um, we don't live in a country that has realized these values when we talk about equality and, and the values of our founding we have an opportunity to do the work of pursuing them um and and at no point in my life has doing that work been more necessary than right now because at no point in my life is the gap between what america the story america tells about itself um who we are at home and what we are in the world kind of further away from the reality of where that story is and so being american is closing that distance between the story we tell about ourselves uh, and, and the reality, in my, in my view. 
Let, let me follow up with something I wasn't sure I was going to ask, but given what you just said, I want to raise it. There seems to be enormous resistance, and now the politicization of any attempt to tell what you call the story of reality about America. We saw that in the Virginia governor's race. We've seen it in other places. How do we get to the point where Americans can understand what your former boss, uh, President Obama, used to say was our real task, which was to perfect the union? Not to say we were perfect, but to perfect it and to recognize where we fall short. I mean, I think that's a central question. And, and first of all, I, I think it's widespread. You know, in, in, in my you know, corner of the world of what I used to work on, we have not had an honest conversation in this country about the failure of the entire post 9-11 enterprise. You know, Afghanistan was interesting because in the criticism that Biden was taking, part of what was absent was like the reality of the last 20 years. Like this, this wasn't going well up until Joe Biden pulled out. That's just one piece of a much broader American problem where we have trouble, whether it's dealing with our history, whether it's dealing with societal uh, inequality, um, economic inequality, um, whether it's you know aspects of our foreign policy. Um, we, we have a big tr- problem often in, in course correcting in this country, you know, and that 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 causes us to compound the holes that we're in, you know, um, like you could see the explosion of, of economic inequality to take one issue uh, coming out of the 80s. And Bob, you ran on a lot of campaigns that focus on this. And yet we you could see that that was going to create societal strains. You could see that that could create openings for populism. You could see that that could create distrust of government. And yet we just keep digging. We keep, you know, keep doing the same things that, that exacerbate inequality. You know? so, so to me, I, I make that point that, yes, it's structural racism and critical race theory and all the rest of the historical aspects. Um, but it's also even more recent events where we just have a hard time owning it. I do think that the innovation that Obama had on this is something that I think needs to permeate the Democratic Party more today, which is that he could talk about the need for change without asking people to reject what happened in the past, without asking people to kind of renounce parts of their identity they were proud of. What he could say is that American history is a continuum and actually the work of acknowledging where we come up short and doing better is an extension of what came before, not a rejection of it. We were imperfect at our founding, but we were telling a really good story. And, and each generation of Americans, you know, in Obama's telling of the story kind of has their baton run, uh, to make something better. And I think what, what is, it's just someone who's worked on this in politics, um, not as much as you, but for, for two presidential campaigns, you know, what, someone's not going to listen to you when you're telling them about something that's wrong. If you're kind of asking them to give up the entire mythology that they grew up, you know, um, about what kind of country America was about the American dream, about, uh, aspects of American history that people are proud of. Um, and so you have to create a space to have the, the honest conversation and to, to, to create that space, whether you like it or not, you have to, to engage that person from a point of what are they proud of, not what are they ashamed of. Um, and, and you have to make it a point of pride, at least this is what I saw Obama do quite well, in, in people kind of taking another step forward. Um, and it's harder to start that conversation when it's, it's about uh, asking people to, to acknowledge things that they believe that are no longer true. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about Obama. I recall that in his announcement speech, 
And then in the speech he gave at Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, the National Constitution Center, at the height of the Jeremiah Wright controversy, he actually praised the Founding Fathers, Yeah, which is something you don't always hear these days from a lot of other Democrats. You can respond to that if you want, or I, I'll move on. No, I, I just think that's exactly right. And he would, you know, he, if you go back and listen to in no other country is my story possible, you know, um, a lot the founders, like he, he situated this very 2.0 version of the American story, Barack Hussein Obama, in the continuum from the founders through, you know, World War II and, and these, you know, um, and, and to his, he, he is an extension of that. He's not a repudiation of it. And I think that created a permission structure for a bunch of people to vote for him who might not otherwise have done it. Yeah, I think Democrats have to get back to that, too. But now I want to I move on in, in terms of the book. I was really struck by the fact that you mentioned that you felt like an exile in your own country during your time in the White House. What did you mean by that? I mean, really two things. One was the degree to which the, the severity of the shift to Trump. You know, I'm, I'm spit out after eight years. That's already going to be a disorienting experience. But there's Donald Trump, who represents kind of the opposite of everything I believe in. Um, and particularly because he embraced this kind of nationalist, authoritarian, right-wing brand of politics. The symbols, everything from the flag to uh, the White House itself, to the kind of trappings of, of, of American power in the world, the symbols became polluted and be, became complicated for me. You know, I, I couldn't feel quite the same emotion, right? Like looking at um, symbols of American democracy, knowing that, that it was essentially corrupted. I think more interestingly, though, Bob, like I write about this experience in the book of, of, of learning um, a couple years out of the White House that uh, through the press, that I was being spied on by Black Cube, which is uh, an outfit of former Mossad uh, agents that had been enlisted to do everything from you know spying on Harvey Weinstein's accusers, trying to dig up dirt on them, to to spying on me, and um, and and it was disorienting, and it was you know the the allegation was that that, that some kind of Trump associates had hired these people to dig up dirt on me, vaguely because of you know the Iran nuclear deal, but it, it then. Then I, I described this experience of um, my uh, literary agent saying, "Hey, uh, your Google is a dumpster fire. You know, you should you should talk to one of these people who kind of cleans up your reputation online." I thought oh, that's kind of gross. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. But when I talked to that guy, what he said is like, "Look, we couldn't really do this for you anyway because, based on our analysis of, of your online profile, someone is running a systematic disinformation campaign against you. You know, to to make all the bad stuff about you be what popular it's the internet and stuff like that." And so the combination of, and never mind the fact that I was hauled in front of, you know, Trey Gowdy and, and House Republican investigative committees. So in addition to kind of just that emotional feeling of exile from the center of American kind of democracy, I had this tiny little taste, and I don't want to compare it to people like Alexei Navalny, you know, who I talked to in the book, but, you know, of being hounded, right? Like I'm, I've got private spies trying to dig up dirt on me. I've got people running information operations against me. Getting hauled in front of congressional committees about stuff that about conspiracy theories, basically that weren't true, and it was a reminder that, like you know, that this did not happen ten years ago. <laughs> you know, like like we are drifting in a direction where being in the political opposition, if you will, of in particular the kind of Trumpian brand of Republican is increasingly it's not yet dangerous, but it has early stage characteristics of what happens to people and 
and semi-autocracy. And, and given that everybody else I was talking to for this book was basically in some fashion an oppositionist um, or dissident or, or, or what have you, seeing aspects of the American experience that are beginning to look like places that we think of as very different than America was, was an interesting exercise. So you write about those individual dissidents in places like Russia, Hungary, and Hong Kong. Why did you think it was so important to look at global events through the perspective of their individual lives? Well, first of all, because a, a core idea of this book is that we can understand what's happening in America by looking at America from the outside in. Um, and, and the jumping off point for me really was I was talking to this Hungarian anti-corruption activist. And I said, well, how did your country go from being this liberal democracy in 2010 when Viktor Orban was elected prime minister to basically being in you know, a single party autocracy um, today, albeit with elections? Um, and he said, well, that's simple. Uh, Viktor Orban got elected in 2010 on a right wing populist backlash to the financial crisis. Then he packed the courts with far right judges who would find in favor of his power grabs. He uh, changed the voting laws to make it easier for his supporters to vote and harder for others. He redrew the parliamentary districts to vastly favor his party and kind of entrench them in power. He enriched some cronies on the outside through corruption, who then financed Orban's politics, bought up the media, and turned it into a right-wing propaganda machinery. And he wrapped the whole thing up in an us-versus-them nationalist message, us, the real Hungarians, against them, Muslims, immigrants, George Soros, and he's talking, and I'm like, well, this is, this is the precise experience that I lived from 2010 when the Tea Party came into power until, until today in almost every way. And, and so I just wanted to start to pull the thread on what can we learn about what's happened in America through the experience of authoritarianism in these three places that are different flavors. Hungary is kind of the closest to the American flavor, and that's why you have Tucker Carlson and Mike Pence and all these guys going over there to hang out with Orban. Russia was kind of the template for Hungary. Um, and so Russia, in many ways, kind of anticipates the playbook that is migrated to the West. And then China represents kind of the alternative future of where authoritarianism is going. Um, and through the experience of all these different individuals in these different places, I wanted to give the flavor of what it's like to live through this period of time. And, and, and what can we learn about why we got here from these individual stories? Um, and, and what can we learn about how people are pushing back uh, in the hopes that, that we might learn lessons from that. Yeah, I, listening to you, I, I'm struck by the thought that what's happened in America is actually now helping to hurt democracy or helping to discredit democracy around the world. That for a long time, people looked to us as a model, whether you had a Republican or a Democratic president, they looked to us as a model. And, you know, Jimmy Carter went around the world supervising elections or monitoring elections. Uh, do you think that the events of the last 10 years and then the Trump years have degraded the image of America as a democracy and had a knock-on effect in all these other countries? Yes, 100%. And I found that everywhere I went. I'll give a co- two anecdotes that, that drove this home to me that I use in the book. You know, one was uh, Naval- Alexei Navalny, right, who's the chief opponent to Putin, currently in prison for a crime he didn't commit after being poisoned for a second time by the Russian government, almost killed. And Navalny was telling me, you know, look, here's the thing you have to understand about Putin. Putin doesn't need to convince his own people that he is not corrupt. You know, the cat's out of the bag to some extent on that, although he, he, that's a vulnerability for him. What Putin's goal is, is to convince you that everybody's corrupt. There's no difference. 
that America is no more, quote unquote, democratic than Russia. It's all it's all bullshit. It's all a game that's rigged for people at the top. So you might as well in that world have a strong man who at least kind of gives meaning to your identity and gives expression to your grievances and hates the same people that you do and that kind of thing. And he said that, you know, there were two things that were really important in fueling that narrative for Putin. Uh, one was the financial crisis, because that made it, and this is something I heard again and again, that the American system itself was so corrupt that a global catacly- cataclysm can take place and all the people who caused it are still rich. And that, and the degree to which Putin kind of played into that. But then even more importantly was Trump. And Navalny said to me, look, you know, my whole life I've been making an argument. I quote this in the book. I, he says, my whole life I've making an argument that in a democracy, the, the people that rise to the top are less corrupt. And he's like, here is somebody who is so obviously corrupt that, as Navalny told me, like any Russian cab driver on the street can look at that and think, well, Putin's right. Look at their system. Like, look at that guy. That guy who gets to the top of American democracy. Why is democracy any better than, than what we have here? It's the same thing. And that's why I used to always explain to people when they'd ask me, like, why did Putin want Trump to win so much? Is Did he want sanctions released in Ukraine? No, he wanted that. He wanted to show that democracy was hopelessly corrupt. The other thing that, that struck me is I was in Japan. I tell the story, I was meeting with like a group of the business leaders in Japan. I thought it was there to talk about foreign policy and it was during all one of the North Korea flare-ups. So I thought that's what they all want to talk about. And every one of them, almost every one of them asked me and said about Charlottesville and Trump and white supremacy and really searching questions. And I realized that in a way, to them, the United States turning into that was far more dangerous than North Korea because every assumption that they'd made in their whole lives about how the world operated, Japan's alliance with the United States is kind of, they may not like all of American foreign policy, but the kind of stability of American democracy, which Japan has obviously built on that model. If that's out the window, then, then where do they turn? So what, how I experience is, yes, we've, we've lost that credibility. That's hurt people who draw on the power of our example, like a Navalny, and that's broken the trust uh, with allies who kind of depend on us to be the, the anchor of the global democratic world. Um, and that's, I think, what accounts for the fact that if you look around the world today, everything feels very unmoored, very unsteady. Even with Joe Biden in office, I think those feelings are still very much there. You mentioned China earlier as a, as a kind of new and different form of authoritarianism and nationalism. And you spent a lot of time in Hong Kong as well, talking with dissidents. And you saw how the party quelled the protests there. Uh, how is China's nationalism and its authoritarianism different than, say, Hungary or Russia? So the nationalism is quite similar. And, and I was struck by this because you think of China as a communist party. But I had a, a guy who had been in Tiananmen Square and then become this kind of fascinating publisher of kind of anti-Chinese Communist Party books out of Hong Kong. You know, he and some others walked me through how after Tiananmen Square, part of what they did is they rebranded themselves from a communist party to more of a nationalist party. And that meant that everything changed from the party, you know, resurrecting Confucius as an iconic figure after having kind of banished him in the 20th century to the curriculum in schools um, being much more nationalist to the the kind of anti-Western, anti-Japanese flavor in the, in the media, um, they, they kind of steadily built um, this model where they were no longer the vanguard of worldwide revolution. They were now the vanguard of Chinese identity. 
Now, what's different is the tools that they acquired along the way and the way that they, they use them to shape their system. And, and, and really it's technology. Um, and in Hong Kong, the story I asked everybody is like, tell me how did, what was your experience of authoritarianism kind of bleeding into your life? And it was very technologically focused in the sense that, uh, it used to be this very free and open society. Then things started to get more restrictive on like kind of what kind of protests you could have and things like that. But then it just kind of started to become known as, and they called this the white terror in Hong Kong. You know, don't post anything on social media that might be perceived as critical of the Chinese government because that could harm your capacity to get a job that depends on the Chinese marketplace. And a lot of Hong Kong's economy does. And that even then blended into, oh, don't even write anything in an email because the, the, the assumption is every email is checked against some keywords. And even if you say something in email and then that blend, it bleeds into like, are people surveilling my phone? You know, and, and this constant shifting around which encrypted app. And, 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 and at the same time, the curriculum is starting to change in the Hong Kong schools. Suddenly you're supposed to stand up and sing the Chinese Communist Party anthem. Suddenly, you know, you're, you're learning about, um, uh, a different version of history. And it started to bleed into culture. So like a Hong Kong pop singer, for instance, um, made some comment, you know, that, uh, was friendly to Taiwan and she gets bombarded basically canceled, you know, and bombarded with millions of Chinese Twitter users and she's banned from the Chinese market. And, and, and so that before there were security services in the streets and that's where Hong Kong protests ended up. What they experienced was this encroachment of what life is like actually in China. And if you look at mainland China, they have created a total surveillance uh, state where they are monitoring, you know, what your keywords are on the internet. Um, you know, what, what, what patterns of patterns of data you're leaving behind. And they're deploying a massive artificial intelligence capacity to kind of sort out who's trustworthy and who's potentially untrustworthy. And if you say the wrong thing, or if you're just insufficiently patriotic in your digital footprint, which is very vast today, you might wonder not whether necessarily you're going to get thrown in prison, but maybe your kid won't get into a good school. Maybe you won't get a job. And so there's this effort to deploy technology kind of holistically across the whole society to shape individual choices. Um, and that goes far beyond a Russia or Hungary where, you know, if it, it, in, in Russia, they can use it to intimidate you, but, but they don't have the, the wherewithal to do what China's doing. But the danger is China's starting to, to export some of those technologies. So what you're really saying, I think, is that the combination of social media and artificial intelligence is enabling this trend toward more authoritarian governments that exercise more control over their people. It's a pretty depressing picture. Can we do anything about it? Yeah, it, it is a depressing picture in the sense that, because what's interesting about it is one way for Americans to think about this is big, it's about big data and artificial intelligence. And so you experience this on a corporate level if you're American. You know, there's a reason why they know how to target you with certain ads and they anticipate what your Google search is going to be. In China, it, it's the same data set except more expansive because China collects a lot of data on citizens deployed for political purposes by the state. And so, so just think if the, instead of it being, you know, like some anonymous corporate uh, behemoth, um, it, it was a, a kind of totalitarian state that had access to all your data and was using it to kind of shape you and your choices. Yeah, we can do a lot about it, I think. First and foremost, we have to kind of get our own house in order, right, generally speaking. And there's a lot to that. The one thing I'd point out for starters is 
social media, these are American platforms. So the disinformation coursing through the veins of global politics is emanating from this country, which means it can be regulated by our government. <laughs> and so, you know, why we are not at a minimum seeking to, to, to regulate social media and, and the development of, of new data mining technologies in ways that safeguard privacy, that diminish conspiracy theory and the spread of hate speech. These are within our control. These are man-made platforms. They're human-written algorithms. They are, they're within the regulatory and antitrust purview of the United States government. And, and, and so to me, this is, you know, step one in terms of, uh, addressing this nexus of technology and, and, and authoritarianism. Um, they're available tools. I, I think beyond that, we have to think about what the story of democracy is going forward, that we're not going to change a Chinese, you know, one of the conclusions I draw about Hong Kong, where I'm literally interacting with these people as their city is being suffocated. And people that I met in Hong Kong for this book now are in exile in places like London, Australia. And I knew we, there's nothing we could do to help. Them. No foreign policy was going to save Hong Kong. What they really need and what they told me essentially is for the world to change. You know, it's, it's not going to be a sudden change in the Chinese Communist Party's view towards Hong Kong. It's going to be 10 or 20 years from now where the pendulum has swung back sufficiently in the world in favor of democratic behaviors and norms that they can return to a Hong Kong that, that is, is freer, you know? Um, and, and that requires, I think, less the confrontation with the Chinese model and more the fortification uh, and strengthening of the democratic alternative so that that pendulum can swing back. Okay, you also talked about the economic roots of a lot of this, Orban and Putin exploiting what happened in the financial crisis. How is the economy contributing to this now? I mean, what impact are economic factors having on what's going on today as distinct from 10 years ago? There were kind of three stages of this this problem that, again, Bob, you really, you were out on the forefront of this politically in this country. That I see. The first was that that period from the '90s through the financial crisis, when even before the bottom fell out, inequality is really getting out of control. People can sense that. So all these countries I'm looking at, Hungary and Russia, China, they're all on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So they experienced the kind of incoming of capital. And yet, standards of living—they all describe a similar dynamic, where initially standards of living go up, and everybody feels good about that. But there's, you're losing something, right? There's a homogenization of culture happening and everything feels like a chain and the old buildings are getting knocked down. And, and so people are already feeling unsettled. Then the bottom falls out and it's like, wait a second. This whole thing is a house of cards. I just lost, you know, all my savings. Uh, I've also lost my sense of identity, um, in this globalization deal and I'm pissed about it. And, 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 you know, the global economy has kept moving. Um, but I think the last 10 years where we are today is the risk is, I think, extreme kind of cynicism about capitalism. The rich just keep getting exponentially richer before our eyes. There is corruption scandal after corruption scandal. You know, the Pandora Papers in some other age and time would have been a much bigger deal. But what's that surprising about, billion, you know, foreign leaders stashing tens of billions of dollars in tax havens or it's depressing the degree to which it, this is all kind of baked in. And, um, there's this, and, but that's that Navalny point about people don't like that, but they also think it's, it's incorrectable. They don't believe that anybody's trying 
to deal with inequality and extreme wealth and tax cheating and, and corruption, right? And, and so, so to me, what the battle we're facing today, um, is, 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 is the battle against cynicism. Things can change, you know, um, and, and even the powerful things that, that, that the Biden team is doing, um, they don't seem to be translating into a story that people feel that, that something fundamental is shifting, right? Um, and, and I'm not, that's not to lay blame because, you know, we clearly in the Obama years, same thing with things, a lot of indicators went up and we did some good things, healthcare and, but, but the people just feel like the story, they've lost a grip on, on the economic story that they're living in. Um, and I think that that makes it much more likely that people will vote on issues that are not economic issues because the, the, the identity based issues feel more weirdly impacted by politics than the economic ones, even if that's not the case. So to go to those identity issues, how does the challenge of immigration, refugees, what we're seeing on the border in Eastern Europe, how does that feed into this? Because it seems to me, and you talk about this too, but it seems to me that so much of this is driven by fear of the other, that the other is dangerous. Yeah, I think that the central to the, the politics, it's not the root cause though. Um, you know, I, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to, I didn't believe a kind of, there was a, there were so many theories of Trump, you know, you know, remember 2016. And the, the one that was kind of popular in, in the, my, you know, somewhat nerdy global circles was the, everything was about the refugee crisis, you know, that like things are going along and then the refugee crisis happened in 2015 and then you got Brexit and Trump. And I didn't like that because it ignored the fact that I felt rising authoritarianism the entire time <laughs> through the Obama presidency, the, including in my own country with the, the Tea Party and the kind of abandonment of democratic norms by the Republican Party in the rise of people like Orban before the refugee crisis uh, internationally in a much more, you know, you know uh, sort of Putin uh, and across the board. So uh, I think the rush refugee crisis became a symptom of, again, this identity question where, you know, one of the things that, that, that I w- went through, Bob, uh, in writing the book was each each in each country, I heard a lot about the 20th century, and part of what I heard is that the 20th century became about these isms, right? Um, you know, communism versus democratic capitalism. Before that, fascism. Big ideological debate. When you removed those isms from kind of the global debate, it's kind of natural that everything reverted back to identity. You know, because uh, the 21st century contests are about not communism versus democracy. It's China, Russia, the US, Europe, we're kind of back in the world as it normally is, where it's like big nationalist powers competing. And so people were already um, moving in that direction. In the West, the immigration issue has been the most potent issue in motivating um, the, 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 a, a nationalist fervor. And, you know, in this country, part of what I found in reflecting on my experience in politics in the 21st century, Bob, is that like, Post 9-11, a massive other is created. You know, we are at war on terror, whatever that is. And at the beginning, the enemy is very much Al-Qaeda and the terror. And then there's a lot of adjacent stuff to that, you know, radical Islam, et cetera, creeping Sharia law in the United States. Remember when that was a thing? Um, you know, the pack of wolves circling at the end of the Bush 04 campaign. Um, what's interesting, I think, is as those wars lost luster because they weren't 
being the great victories that, that Bush had promised. The other more became the immigrant at the southern border. <laughs> um, the same xenophobic se segments that used to run on Fox about the war on terror are now about the border. And so there was an other that could just be repurposed. Um, and, you know, I think in Europe, obviously, that other is, is immigrant populations that are changing kind of the ethnically homogeneous feel of, of, of nation states. And I think the basic conundrum facing liberals, progressives, socialists uh, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the West is part of our comparative advantage and, and the contrast that we draw with the China is that we're multicultural, multiracial society. But part of the challenge in pushing back against nationalism in our own countries is not allowing the politics of immigration to have nationalists installed in our countries. And so like, we have to preserve what is core to our identity as multiracial, multiethnic democracies. Um, and I think in the long run, a comparative advantage to China um, or Russia and that we have this big, diverse, enriching population. Um, but how do you manage that in a way that, that, that doesn't uh, play into the politics of people that scapegoat immigration all the way to, to power? And that's, that's the delicate balance there. Toward the end of the book, you write, and this is a quote, for me, the experience of looking into the eye of where America has gone wrong has only made me love more fiercely what America is supposed to be. What can we do as individuals? What can Americans do as individuals to advance President Obama's aspiration for America to be a promised land? Uh, I mean, we've been talking about all the problems. How do we get out of this? First of all, on a global scale, you'd ask, we talked before, we had kind of the depressing talk about America losing credibility. I actually think that there's a huge opportunity, though, for America to win its credibility back because we're now recognizable. We're not issuing statements and speeches about democracy from the mountaintop, you know, to, to the small people around the world. We're in the same soup as everybody else. You know, people around the world have seen, you know, we can have a corrupt autocrat with an law down the hall. We can have a mob storm the parliament. That happened everywhere, right? If we can fight through this, then we're setting a very relevant example for the rest of the world. Uh, in terms of what people can do, uh, you know, uh, you know, part of what I found is, um, what, because I get the question a lot, what gives you hope? Part of what gives me hope today versus 10 years ago is we are having very core conversations about what our democracy is, about what American identity is, about the stakes in, in public life and politics. Um, I think that, and when I engage with younger people, um, what I'm finding is that, you know, you are making decisions in all that you do about these questions. So in other words, the easy answer to give, and it's the right answer, right, is everybody can participate in in the political process. People can vote, people can organize, people can donate, people can join a cause, etc. But I'm saying even be beyond that or underneath that, um, living the identity that you would like to see reflected in your country in all that you do, um, I think is, is kind of where we're at today. And, and part of what you'll find is that people on the other side of this debate, and it's not Democratic or Republican, because part of what I find hopeful in America, too, is that there's a kind of small D democratic coalition that goes beyond just the Democratic Party that needs to hold the, hold the line, if you will. 
But the people on the other side of this, they live it and they live it. They live it in, in, in their politics. They live it in their jobs. They live it in their school boards. And I think that, that all of us have a role to play in living as the type of citizens that we want our country to, to be, right? Uh, and, 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 and that, you know, I, that's a, that's a powerful, um, that if you start to apply that prism to how you live in your community, how you interact um, uh, in your workplace, what you do with your extra time, uh, how you engage in political debates, I, I think that you know applying that prism kind of globally. Um, if enough people do that, we'll be fine. Because at the end of the day, there are far more people that believe in. I, I believe. There are far more people that believe in the better story of an America um, that is that that privileges equality um, than the, than the other team, you know. Um, but but we all have to show up on the field. We have a lot of questions from the audience, so I think I'm going to move to those. So the first question is from Alexandra Dukovska, and if I mispronounced your name, I apologize. What are the prospects for a renewed Iran nuclear deal? They're not great. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're under 50 percent. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the timing kind of got crosswise because Trump on the way out the door piles up a whole bunch of new sanctions on Iran. Biden comes in in order to rejoin the deal quickly. He would have had to just kind of lift those sanctions as part of the deal. And he's doing a bunch of other stuff and pandemic, et cetera. By the time the Biden team is turning to this in the spring, the Iranians are entering an election cycle that produces a hardliner. So we just lost kind of a year here um, as Iran's nuclear program is expanding. I still think that despite the hardline government in Iran, like there's this is still the best of all the alternatives uh, for everybody, including the Iranians. And so that's why there's still a possibility of a deal. I think what you might also see, though, is a less comprehensive deal where Iran you know, might stop what they're doing. Uh, and advancing their program in change for more limited sanctions, and then we have more diplomacy. The great irony of that is that that would be a far weaker deal than the original Iran deal, which was held up as not strong enough. So the net result of Trump tearing this deal up and causing this multi-year international crisis for basically no reason is that the best we might be able to get is a less good version of the deal. But uh, that, that, too, is the insanity of, of aspects of American uh, politics. Here's another question. This is from Terrence Graham, who I think is pretty disillusioned with our politics from the tone of this question. He says, in many ways, U.S. financial and legal services have served as the facilitators of authoritarian capitalism. For example, Russia and China, they profited enormously from this endeavor. I'm referring here to the McKinsey's and Deloitte's and the tax optimization schemes that have sucked capital out of countries and into the shell accounts of political leaders and their cronies. Can we fix this when these very actors are so entwined with our own political parties? I encourage you to pick up the book because I don't shy away from this. The American-supported privatization schemes in Russia in the 90s basically created this oligarchic state that Putin could then take over. The American, you know, in addition to what's mentioned in the question, take China. The American venture capital that financed the buried surveillance technologies <laughs> talking about, you know, it wasn't just Chinese government investment. It was a lot of American dollars flying in, flying in China. The American kind of made financial schemes that, that contribute to inequality. I mean, there's a lot uh, that we have to answer for. I, I there, there, there was, and there was a, 
I tried to write about this as you know really bluntly as someone who's used to be in in the American government because I do think there's a danger. You know, I love Anne Applebaum. She has that cover piece in the Atlantic uh, on global authoritarianism, and it's great on on its subject matter. What, what's missing a little bit is that we contributed to the problem um, through our financial uh, financial sector and our military. I mean, our look at the some of the worst dictators in the world are American backed, right? Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Anyway, so that's the long self own that I think that Americans need to do to 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 uh, to, to have ears open. What I would say though is that like, if you don't like that, you, you know, you just got to keep trying to elect people who will change it. There, there's not, I mean, like, um, this is. Um, this is a lot of, of what we're talking about. And a lot of what's embedded in that question has its origin in the eighties in the Reagan, uh, election. And then the Reagan kind of dismantling of the regulatory state, um, and, uh, continued, uh, with, with, uh, vigor by the kind of Republican Congress. Um, and I guess what I'd say is that the Democratic Party has been in bed with some of these interests or aspects of the Democratic Party, but that's changed a pretty good amount. And when I look at the Democratic Party's view of, of, of tax policy and regulation, just to take one aspect of this, today, it is far more skeptical than in 2009, um, even after the financial crisis, when Obama is elected and has these big Democratic majorities, where, you know, there's one Joe Manchin today, like, there were 15 Joe Manchins in the Senate in, in 2009. You know, um, so when people are cynical about this, I you can be correct in your cynicism, but the challenge is the only solution to that and only recourse for that is a combination of political action and elections. And then, you know, I think kind of cultural or bottom-up pressure on certain companies and, and behaviors. And I think it's having a difference. I mean, you, the agenda today is different because of the views expressed in that question and how widespread they are. Okay, question three comes from Hugo. What about Latin America? Because the cases you're describing in Hungary and Russia seem to fit remarkably well with cases like Brazil, Nicaragua, and even El Salvador, Honduras. Does this reflect a wider blind spot of the American policy establishment? Yeah, I mean, the reality is I could have and even contemplated early in this process doing Brazil, uh, doing India, doing Israel, <laughs> doing the Philippines. Um, it is, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's ample evidence of the nationalist authoritarian trend I'm, I'm talking about in the book. I followed the path I did because it just kind of, I, I began in Hungary and Hungary kind of led directly to Russia. Uh, and then China leads me back to the future. But I think that if you look at Latin America, What's interesting in Latin America is that there's two kind of flavors of authoritarianism in Latin America. There's, there's still the old left flavor, right? The Cuban and Venezuelan, you know, which I interacted with a ton in government negotiating with the Cubans. But that to me is not where the energy, that, 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 that's still a, a huge challenge. But, but the energy is in this kind of more nationalist vein. And that's, I think Bolsonaro is the perfect expression of that. He's almost like a guy you could create in a lab. To manifest this trend. I do think what's interesting about it, though, is that Venezuela, which started as an India ideologically leftist project, is now kind of just a kleptocracy, right? So Venezuela has become more like one of these kind of right-wing petro-states than, than 
it started out as. It's this kind of weird blend of, of a, of a, of a left wing system and a kleptocracy. But I do think that the, the general challenge in Latin America is there's a similar dissatisfaction with, uh, established order. And, and so you can have people as diverse as AMLO in Mexico, Bukele, um, uh, Bolsonaro, um, just in his own way, Maduro, uh, Daniel Ortega, very different politics there. <laughs> Crypto bro, Sandinista, you know, Trumpian guy, um, left wing populist in Mexico, but they're all tapping into just people don't trust systems and are willing, therefore, to trust strongmen. And I do believe that the American policy in Latin America doesn't feel designed for that moment. It's still designed for like, you know, the nineties or something where we kind of, there's an assumption that, um, uh, of a certain de- democratic trajectory within which we build like initiatives. Um, <laughs> I, I think we, we have to pay much more attention to democracy in our own hemisphere. And when I say that, I don't mean just the rhetoric. I mean, cause we always give the rhetoric, but the rhetoric is not connecting with people because it feels out of date. I think. So question four is uh, kind of sprawling. It's from anonymous. How do we deal with Orban? with the migrant crisis in Europe on the border between Belarus and Poland, and with Russia and China's growing influence in the Balkan region? Maybe that's asking you to provide a whole foreign policy in one answer. <laughs> yeah, so because there's a whole answer in my book about how do you deal with Orban in Hungary, because I talked to the Hungarian opposition. And they're doing, they've done something interesting in unifying the entire opposition to take Orban on next year in an election um, and have like a fighting chance against him because of that. But the, the tenor of your question is more foreign policy focused. So I'll give a foreign policy answer, which is we, we, the U.S. and Europe need to, to make our own institutions actually prioritize democracy. What do I mean by that? Well, Hungary, all the corruption I talked about, you know, how did Orban, you know, uh, enrich a bunch of cronies who could then finance his politics and buy up the media? It was with European Union funds. The EU gives huge grants each year to, to Hungary for things like infrastructure. And then Orban, and I detail it in the book, you know, from the work of my anti-corruption uh, characters, but you know, he just skims massive amounts off the top in the contracts that he gives to his buddy. And like the richest man in Hungary was once a pipe fitter. He was a high school friend of Orban's, now he's a billionaire. It's not subtle what happened. But the EU never turns off this spigot because... They've never put democracy and the rule of law ahead of economic interests, you know, in, 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 in making those calculations. Hungary is still in NATO, um, which is supposed to be an alliance of democracies. And so then what happens? You have these soft spots, right? That are entry points for China and Russia to gain more influence. And so another Hungarian example, the largest production center for Huawei outside of China is in Hungary. Um, which gets them into the EU market, get the made in the EU stamp on, on their Huawei technology. Um, the Belt Road initiative is moving heavily into the Balkans, as was mentioned, and with it, all the corruption that comes with that, which is usually, um, you know, uh, erodes, uh, uh, political institutions. And, and so I think the starting place has to be saying whether it's NATO, the EU, I, I would rather have a, a strong, democratic bloc that also is making decisions in its foreign policies based on democratic values and, and, and democracy ahead of these other interests, which are usually economic interests, 
Now, I actually think that's not just a values-based argument. I think it's a it's an interest-based argument because allowing China and Russia to begin to pull at the threads, or they're not begin, they already to continue to pull at the the threads that weave together the, the liberal order is going to dramatically weaken the position of the United States and, and the European Union. Whereas if we are unified and and firm in defense of our interests and, and values, we're in, a, we're in a stronger position on a, on a host. Okay, here's a question from John Pendall. You mentioned how authoritarians portray the U.S. as equally corrupt. How do authoritarians portray international organizations like the U.N. or non-governmental organizations? I think there are two ways. I mean, the first is they kind of sabotage some of them, right? So Russia and China have basically rendered the U.N. Security Council meaningless, you know, um, they don't intervene oh, certainly on any issue that has a nexus to to humanitarianism or democracy. Um, there's no expectation anymore. That the UN Secu- right now, there's like a, a a potential crisis in Ethiopia that could dwarf Syria in terms of loss of life and displaced peoples, and that's saying something. And nobody would ever expect the UN Security Council would do anything about that. Or or look at Myanmar, you know, or, you know. And, and so part of it is that they sabotage the functioning of the system to make the system obsolete. They also are more effectively cast the World Bank and IMF as kind of these tools of American and capitalist control. You know, everybody, you're always having to take an austerity plan to sign up. And and lo and behold, here comes China with money to build infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, which moves much faster than the World Bank or the IMF. Now, they end up being debt traps. <laughs> so, so, uh, the, there's a flaw in the, the, it's not like the Chinese have figured out, uh, how to give people free money. But I think that the, the basic premise, right, is to discredit and make dysfunctional the kind of U.S. led institutional order around the world, create a parallel set of institutions, right? That's what the Belt Road Initiative is and stuff that are mainly commercial in nature. Um, but come with it a degree of political influence. Um, and so there, there really is no functioning agreed upon global order. There's just powerful nations competing with each other. Here's a question from our friend Jamie Cabler, and I'm hoping I can get to a few more of these before we have to conclude. Ben, you helped negotiate the opening to Cuba. What's happening there now, and what's your prediction about where events will take us? I mean, I, 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 nothing has more been more you know disappointing to me. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, essentially we negotiate this opening in the last two years. There's an enormous amount of hope unleashed in Cuba. Um, as part of the agreement, they bring uh, internet access to Cuba. There's a lot more interaction between Americans and Cubans. And so expectations are rising on the island. Then Trump slams the doors shut and starts piling sanctions back on. And then the, uh, the powder keg starts to build in Cuba. But a lot of people, meanwhile, are suffering because of these sanctions. and now you're in a situation where Cubans are, are more pissed off than they've been because they've had this whiplash with us. They've had this change and there's no Castro's in charge anymore. So there's this kind of post-revolutionary generation in charge. It doesn't have, you know, the same legitimacy, whatever you think of the Castro's. There's not even like, why am I hearing about the revolution from this guy? <laughs> you know, um, I want some food on the, on, on, on table. And I think the Biden team has made a terrible calculation to just, cause I think if you open things up, Different places, you know, require different solutions. And an island 90 miles of Florida, opening things up will change them. It will make 
people's lives better in the immediate term because they won't be punished anymore under this embargo. Um, and and I just there's no scenario in which uh, I think this this government can can prevent change if there's a tremendous amount of activity, information, economic activity, and travel flowing through Cuba. So I think that that every dial that we turn on the pressure valve is just extending the capacity of this regime to to hold on to a system that should work. But I, I my assessment is the Biden team doesn't want to take on the po- it's not substance because all these same people were with me in government when we did the opposite. <laughs> I think politically they've just decided it's not a fight they want to have. Yeah, maybe our Cuba policy is a Florida policy. It's a Florida policy, and 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 let's face it, like Senator Menendez is the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee that confirms every one of their nominees for an ambassador. You know, there's just it's a it's a it's tough politics. I mean, even though it's one of these bizarre issues, Bob, where the American people, if you pull them, like, do you want to have the ability to travel to Cuba? It's like ninety percent. You support lifting the embargo? It's like sixty percent. But it it's Florida politics. And coupled with the weird, like, joining of communism, attacks on communism in Cuba, it's all, but it's all Florida and, and, and a handful of powerful people in Congress. Yeah, there are two questions here that overlap, so I'm just going to put them together. In terms of regulating social media, how can we determine what misinformation is and who gets to remove it? Who becomes the ultimate arbiter of truth? You say this is within the American purview. But we can't control technologies very well, even within our own borders. What exactly should we do with Facebook, Twitter, and all these other sites to stop the spread of conspiracy theories, hate speech, and to stop facilitating authoritarianism around the world? So the quick answer I get to that, knowing we don't have a lot of time, is that the, the scale of the problem compels action. You know, I described the end of the book, Obama saying to me, okay, well, there's always been authoritarians. What's different now? What's different now is that the technology, never mind the Chinese version of total control, in this country, 45% of people can believe something that is totally untrue because of technology. You know, that Donald Trump won the election or a healthy chunk of people can believe that the world is run by a cabal of child sex traffickers. These things are new. This is a new feature in the political landscape that technology can radicalize people and scale up conspiracy theory to this extent. These algorithms the, the tech companies try to make you believe that the algorithms don't make choices the human beings do. That's not true. The algorithms are written in a way to turbocharge the spread of sensational information. They are written to achieve engagement as the metric of success. And something that is, is angering or triggering is what is they're designed to spread. And so I think that there's a technologist piece of this and a policy objective piece of this in terms of how do you have algorithms at Facebook, at YouTube, other places that aren't immediately sending people down the worst possible rabbit holes, which they are. And if you look at a lot of the whistleblower stuff, they, they, people know that inside of these companies. And so that's the kind of meta problem you have to get your arms around, to use an unfortunate uh, word, I guess, given the, the recent Facebook launch. But the last thing is uh, on the more extreme cases around hate speech and incitement. I think introducing liability for the company. You wouldn't let a newspaper publish something day after day after day after day that would incite people to storm the Capitol and kill people and try to overthrow American democracy. I think that they're, that, 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 that giving, treating these platforms like they are not media companies and allowing them to avoid any liability for what's on their platform or the consequences of what's on their platform. That's not how we in America approach like any other industry. <laughs> It'd be like saying the, 
car makers have no liability for a glitch in their cars that, that demands a recall. You know, this is a public safety crisis. And so, again, there's very particular, difficult, thorny questions. But those two principles that you have to slow down the dissemination of triggering information, which tends to be conspiracy theory and hate speech, and that you have to introduce the concept of liability, I think have to be a part of that discussion. We have one last really interesting question. We're not going to have time to get to it. It was basically a recent events corroborated or altered the continuum of growing autocracies around the world, uh, especially since the election of Biden. Short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But there's hope. But there's hope. So I want to thank Ben, and I want to thank all of you who are here with us today. Our mission at the center is to be open to the spectrum of different views while respecting each other and respecting the truth. Today was a strong take on our present condition and our future. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Ben. See you in January. And pod save the world. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.